Good morning. Wish I could uh, sprint up here like Pat Blewett does. If I did that, my one of my knees or my back would malfunction, and uh, I would end up teaching from a prone position. Would you turn with me, please, to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark? Gospel uh, Mark nine. Let me begin reading with verse fourteen. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and dumb spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. While I was on sabbatical, I ran across a story of uh, Pericles. I really am not... uh, I'm not doing much reading in Greek classical literature these days, but I I came across a story of this uh, great 5th century century B.C. Greek statesman, probably one of the most uh, profound, one of the most powerful leaders in in Greece's history. His uh, two sons, um, Perilus and Xanthippus, were their names, were killed at the Battle of Thermopylae. And in commenting on their death, he said, I grieve for Perilous because he loved me. And I grieve for Xanthippus because he loves me not. And uh, I felt uh, an enormous amount of empathy with this this man. Here is a powerful leader, great statesman, very wise man. And yet he was a parent who was apparently in pain. And uh, I'm sure... This morning, there are many of you here, mothers and fathers, who are very much in pain over your children. And uh, that's major league pain. Uh, 
on a scale of 1 to 10, that one goes right off the scale. And uh, you know what it's like to be so disillusioned and to experience some of the feelings of shame and, and dishonor and impotence, and you just don't know what to do. Well, here we have in this account a story of a, of a parent in pain and what Jesus did about his uh, discomfort. And I think you will find this passage tremendously encouraging. I know I do. Now, the backdrop of this passage, as you know, is the transfiguration. Jesus took the three uh, disciples, James, Peter, and John, to the top of Mount Hermon, and there he was transfigured, transformed before, before them. And they saw his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw for the first time his unveiled, undisguised glory. He stepped back into eternity for a moment of time, and they saw the glory that he had shared eternally with, uh, with the Father, and they were awed by it. They wanted to stay there and, and worship him and learn from him. Uh, Peter, uh, I can echo Peter's words uh, it's good for us, he said, to be here. And uh, I think all of us from time to time have had these uh, so-called mountaintop experiences. I'm sure that's where that expression must, uh, must come from. And we need them. We need these times alone. And we need times alone with God when we can recreate our, our love for him and, and worship him, gain new strength, get a better grip on him. We need that. Uh, as all of you know, I've just had four months of uh, nothing to do except uh, uh, have a good time. And we did a lot of reading, and uh, these were warm, wonderful times of fellowship with the Lord, a lot of time to, to pray, a lot of time to read the Word and, and to think. And I enjoy that. I, in fact, I decided I would make a great monk. Uh, I like being alone, uh, you know, my little family. Uh, I, I would make a great lighthouse keeper. Uh, I've often, uh, I suppose this is an all-pervasive fantasy. I think everyone has this thought from time to time. I'd like to go off into the mountains and build a log cabin and uh, just let the world go to pieces. Uh, I am encouraged to know that uh, David felt the same way in Psalm 55. David says he would, he would love to have had a little log cabin somewhere to which he could uh, retire and hide. And uh, Jeremiah said the same thing. Uh, while we were uh, traveling, we uh, had an opportunity to visit uh, Walden Pond, uh, Henry David Thoreau's hideaway. It's overrun with tourists now, but wonderful little, uh, well, actually, it's quite a large uh, pond. I wouldn't call it a pond. It's a lake. It's crystal clear and surrounded by hardwood forest. And in uh, Thoreau's day, when there weren't uh, so many people there, it must have been a wonderful place to hide. And, I would like that. I, I, I could get along quite well out there in, in the woods. But uh, you can't stay. You can't stay. Uh, Paul Stuckey has a line in one of his songs, uh, uh, John Henry Boswell. He says, there's a reason for living way down in the valley that only the mountain can know. Uh, you can only stay in the mountain so long. And uh, the mountain itself, uh, that contact with the Lord, encourages you to go back into the world of of demons and dark powers and difficult and disturbing people and live your life out there because that's where it has to be lived. As a matter of fact, when Jeremiah said, oh, that I had a lodging place in the wilderness, God said, uh, that's fine, but then you have to go back into the streets and into the villages and, 
and you have to tell people what great things God has done for them. So you have to make that descent. I have uh, at home a book of some of the great masters, and there's a picture that Raphael, the uh, what, 16th century Italian painter, uh, has painted of the Transfiguration. Uh, up on the top of the mountain, Jesus appears with Elijah and with Moses, and the three disciples are kneeling at his feet, and everything is light and glory, and it's wonderful to be there. And you look at the bottom of the mountain, and everything is dark and twisted and distorted, and it's, it's a very evil place to be. And uh, I can understand why uh, Peter said it's good to be here. But you have to descend into that dark world. That's, that's where the redemptive rubber meets the road. And uh, it's that to which God uh, called the disciples and he calls us. Now, I, I see this as shifting scenes. And the first thing I see is the defeated disciples. Uh, the scribes, who were ironically Bible teachers... Uh, the scribes were a guild of teachers started by the great Ezra, the first of the scribes. It was their job to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic, which was the language of the people, and then to explain them. They were Bible teachers. But they became preoccupied with preserving the scriptures and tradition, and they, they didn't look through the scriptures to the one who was to come, and they were Jesus' staunchest opponents. And they were arguing with the, uh, with the disciples. And I'm sure, although we're not told, they were arguing with them because the disciples were so impotent. They couldn't do anything for this, uh, this, this poor boy. They tried to cast the demon out of the boy, and, and they couldn't. And it made them look bad. They looked like fools. That's encouraging because most of the time we, we all look like fools. We, we all display a great deal of impotence at times. And unfortunately, the world judges us by our ability to handle life's problems. And we don't do very well at that. And uh, perhaps the, even the greater tragedy is they, they're inclined to judge our Lord by our inability to handle life's problems. And when we fail, when we can't do anything, they start thinking, well, neither can he. Uh, yesterday, I understand, was nonstop uh, MTV. Uh, and uh, they they showed reruns of uh, Saturday Night Live. Uh, I haven't watched that program for years. I quit watching it because I realized that they they lampoon everything as high and holy and good and worthwhile, and and I find myself laughing at my own values because it, it's it's funny stuff. But it you know it's, it really just undermines everything that's uh, good. But there was one sequence that uh, stuck in my mind from years ago. A waitress talking to a friend of hers, and she said uh, she was complaining about her last customer. And her, this other waitress says, well, that was Jesus Christ. And she said, well, I don't care who he was. He left a track under the, under the, the uh, plate, and he stiffed me on the tip. And I thought, what a shame, what a shame, if that's what people really think about Jesus. But unfortunately, they are inclined to get their impressions of our Lord from us and our ineptitude. And that's uh, too bad. Carolyn has a little saying, people will always disappoint you. Try Jesus. You just have to look at him. Don't look at his people. Look at him. And uh, uh, when the people in the story looked at Jesus, they had an entirely different concept of, 
of who he was and what he could do. It's interesting, uh, in verse 15, when it says, they were as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. The word greet actually means to greet with, with great respect. They, they showed him great deference. You see, it's a different thing when you see Jesus. If, if you're disappointed with Jesus' disciples, just get your eyes off of, off of us. Because we are a bunch of inept fools. Get your eyes on Jesus. He's the, and when you look at him, you look at him with wonder, with awe. Now let's see what he does. Um, the uh, scene shifts from, this, uh, from these defeated disciples to our Lord's encounter with the, uh, the man and his demonized boy. The uh, symptoms, as they're described here, are the symptoms of epilepsy. Uh, We're told that whenever the demon seized him, he was thrown to the ground. He foamed at the mouth. He gnashed his teeth and became rigid. I'm not a doctor, but I I understand that um, epilepsy is simply a generic term for some sort of whole set of neurological disorders that result in in convulsions and unconsciousness. and, And the symptoms well describe what we would call today epilepsy. But this was a different kind of epilepsy. This was caused by a demon. Now, the scriptures very clearly distinguish between physical illness and demonic, uh, uh, what the scripture called demonization, or what we call demon possession. Uh, That distinction is made. In other words, not all epilepsy is caused by, by demonization. Now, ultimately, all illness is the result of Satan and his demons. He's behind every bad cold you ever had or cough or anything else. He's behind everything that that diminishes the quality of our life. But uh, not every uh, illness is the result of demonization. But in this case, this boy's epilepsy was the result of Satan's attempts to to, to try to destroy him. Now I want to take a minute and talk about demons because this is a hot topic these days. A lot of, a lot of uh, people are wondering. Uh, let me tell you first of all that I believe in Satan and I believe in demons. I take them quite literally because Jesus did. Now sometimes when I say that to people, they, they think I also believe in a flat earth. Um, it, you know, it's, they, they think you, you could not possibly be that naive. Although incidentally... Today, I think more and more people are believing that there really is a malevolent personality behind everything that's going wrong in our world. I see an awareness that, uh, that we've not experienced uh, before. There are, I think, two equal and, uh, two equal and opposite uh, errors. One is to disbelieve in demons. Some people don't believe in, in them at all, and I sometimes think that's where demons are most prevalent. You know, Jim Bridger, the uh, famous... Uh, Woodsman and, and Trapper said that uh, it's where Indians ain't that you find them the thickest. Um, I think that's true of, of demons. It's when uh, we don't acknowledge their presence that we, we find them most virulent, most, uh, most powerful in their, in their influence. Uh, let me explain that demons are simply angels. Uh, and angels are not people that have died and gone to heaven. Uh, Rumors that Michael Landon has come back in the person of an angel, notwithstanding. 
demons are created beings, another order of created beings. They were created uh, a higher order than we. Uh, Hebrews makes it very clear that in our fallen condition, we are we are below, we are underneath angels in the order of things. We will be restored to our preeminence in the new creation. But uh, for a time, they are a higher order of angels. And some of those angels rebelled against God. We don't know much about the origin of the demonic horde, but we know that Satan apparently led a rebellion against God, tried to abscond with God's power, and God threw him out of heaven. Uh, you have to understand that Christians do not believe in two equal and opposite powers. You know, there's not a force in the dark side of the force. That's Zoroastrianism. That's not Christianity. There is God who is all-powerful, and there is um, there's Satan who is a created being, a created angel who is subject to God, ultimately. And uh, though he tried to usurp God's authority, he was overwhelmed, he was defeated, he was thrown out of out of heaven, and now he's trying to get revenge. Revelation 12 traces his uh, his nefarious uh, uh, career. He uh, first tried to destroy the nation of Israel because it was through Israel that the seed was promised, the redemptive seed, the, the Savior who would come and set things right. Then he tried to kill Jesus, tried to drown him in the Sea of Galilee in a storm, and tried in various ways to destroy him and thought he finally had him on the cross. And, and, and of course, our Lord proved to be the victor, and that was Satan's undoing. But he's still on the loose, though he is defeated. There is uh, what Milton calls a, a kind of doom defiance. Some of you remember, may remember Klaus Barbie, the butcher of, of Lyon, who uh, uh, long after Hitler's armies were on the run and it was obvious what the result of the, of the war would be, Klaus Barbie was still murdering uh, uh, French uh, men and women and, and children. Well, I, I think of Satan that way. He, he's the great butcher. Though he's defeated, he's trying to do as much damage as he can. And he's trying to blight and maim and ruin and destroy the quality of life. And that what he was doing to this boy through epilepsy is a good illustration of, of what he's trying to do to every young man and woman in the world. See, God wants young people to be happy. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. God says, Go for it. Go for it. You know, ski the tough slopes. Climb mountains. You know, don't be vexed by life. Interesting. Don't be vexed by life. You know, don't be preoccupied with peer status. You know, young men and women are always so self-conscious and, and uh, so aware of their own personal deficiencies. And bless their hearts. You know, they get up one morning and they look in the mirror and there's a zit on their chin and the whole world has come to an end. And, and they think that everybody in school is looking at them. And, of course, everybody in school is worried about their own zits. They could care less about you having You know, they're just always worried about everything. And, and Ecclesiastes says, don't be vexed by life. Race your motorcycles across the desert. You know, go for all the gusto. Just don't forget God. That's all. Just don't, don't leave God out of your, your life because that's the most important element of all. God wants young men and women to, to live life to the hilt. You know, to live with their dreams and their minds and their bodies. And Satan wants to wants to thwart, frustrate, blight everything that God is is trying to do. Try to destroy 
the natural inhibitions that God has built into you, try to desensitize you to sin through uh, drugs and illicit sex and all the other stuff that, that, that's being force-fed uh, to you through, through the media. Uh, I'm really not a f- <clears throat> I'm not up on uh, contemporary music, but I understand there's a rap group around NWA that uh, just put out a song, uh, or I guess it's an album called I've never I've never heard it pronounced, so I may not pronounce it correctly. Ethel for Zagen, I think, is the uh, is the name. In which young people are urged today to uh, young men are urged to rape women and kill cops and all sorts of things. Amazing, amazing. Just raw violence being pumped into the minds of, of our young people. I read uh, while we were while we were on our sabbatical. I read of uh, an organization in Washington D.C. called the Population Council. It's a pro-abortion um, lobby group and uh, pro-abortion lobby and. In Washington, D.C., they conducted a survey among young people. Interesting. And they were asked if they thought that an unborn child was a human being. Most of them said yes. But yet abortion is still viable, still a valid option. That's interesting. Because many people, naively, I believe, think that if you could just convince others, abortionists, that the fetus is a human being, that that's, a, that's an honest-to-goodness human life, then they wouldn't abort it. But that's not true. That's not true. These young people would choose self-interest over the life of another human being. Now, these are our young people. This is the next generation, you see. Now, where's that coming from? Well, it's, it's coming from the evil one. See, what people don't realize is that it doesn't come from Kmart and from MTV. That's, you know, it does. That's the vehicle. But ultimately, it comes from Satan. That's what Paul calls the mystery of lawlessness. Mystery in the New Testament has to do with something that can only be known through revelation. And what God has told us that you're not going to see in any other publication unless it's based on Scripture is that behind all the awfulness in the world is an evil one, an evil, malevolent, malicious, cruel, murderous personality who's out to destroy, murder and destroy human life. That's why you can't eradicate it by simply getting rid of all the bad literature and bad uh, television programs in the world. You know, I think we ought to boycott stores that purvey this trash. I think, you know, th- these, are, these are right and proper things to do. But if we really think that's going to put an end to evil in the world, and we don't understand this mystery of lawlessness, that behind all of these attempts to destroy our young people is the evil one. It's where the drugs come from. It's where the steroids come from. I just, I read uh, with a great deal of sorrow Lyle Alzado's, Alzado's uh, uh, brain cancer, the result of steroids taken when he was playing for Oakland. Who's behind that? The destruction of body and mind. Well, it's this one, this evil one. And uh, it's, it's well that we recognize his his intent. Now let's talk a bit about this uh, distracted father. My, what a, what a heartache. And you can see Jesus' compassion. That's why he elicited this uh, case history. How long has he been like this? He said, hard case from childhood, been a difficult child from, uh, from the very beginning. All of us begin with such great hopes and dreams for our children, and then sometimes things go wrong. And uh, they turn their back on us, and they turn their back on uh, 
on the Lord and they walk away. And I can tell you, there's, there's just very, there's just no heartache like that. Pain is pain. I'm sure the pain of a divorce or the death of a loved one is, is just as great. But, uh, but that's, that's, that's such a painful, painful, humiliating, horrifying experience. You, you just think it'll never happen to me. I want to tell you something. That proverb, Proverb 22, in Proverbs 22, 16, the one we quote, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old he will not depart from it, is not a promise. It's not a promise. The Proverbs are not promises. They're general observations about life. God worked through certain wise men in Israel, inspired them to be keen observers of life, and they made general statements about life. It is true that in general, if you train a child in the way he should go, that when he's old, you'll he, not depart from it. It's the old uh, adage, you know, apples don't drop very far from the tree. You, know, you build that truth into a child, and, and, uh, and he'll come back to it in general, or he'll remember it in times of stress. He can't get away from it. But let me tell you, Young men and women are human beings, and human beings have the right to choose. And you can homeschool your child, and I'm all for homeschooling. You can send your child to Christian school, and I'm all for Christian schools. And you can take television away from your children, and you can monitor their literature, and you can teach them the Word, and you can pray over them, and you can protect them, and you can do everything that God has called you to do to be a good parent, and they still someday may walk away. From the Lord, because they could choose. You know, even God had a failure. It was uh, Adam. Adam and Adam walked with God in the cool of the evening. He couldn't have had a better father. Couldn't have had a better instructor. Perfect parent. And Adam turned his back on God. And uh, remember Judas. Judas had three, three and a half years of personal instruction from our Lord, and he turned his back on, on our Lord. It happens. It happens. One of my dearest friends, one of the most godly men I've ever met, I've seen him in his home. Uh, I know what kind of father he is. Has had four children, one after another, walk away from the Lord. It happens. And if we think that we can protect our children from that, then we're going to be terribly disillusioned. Terribly disillusioned. Carolyn and I spent a bit of time in Amish country while we were traveling. We uh, camped uh, near Gettysburg and uh, did a lot of reading about the Civil War while we were there. But also did a lot of reading about the Amish. Got very interested in those people. Interesting people. They don't have any tele- You know, they have electricity in their homes. Not in their homes, they... Occasionally you'll find electricity in their barns because some of them are dairy farmers and have to have coolers. But no electricity in their homes, no radios, no television, no newspapers. They have their own schools. They do not permit their young men and women to have any contact with the outside world. Uh, By and large, most of them are believers, evangelical believers. They have a real heart for God, a real heart for His Word. They teach their children. You know what their number one problem is? The kids are walking away from the faith one after another. You just cannot protect your children, see, because they're human beings, and they can choose, and they can walk away, and I'll tell you, it'll rip your heart apart, but it happens. It happens. And this man's problem, of course, was a son who was physically afflicted, but as I say, epilepsy is such a, 
So it's a good picture of what Satan wants to do to every human life, and whether it's through drugs or whether it's through uh, some sexually communicated disease or whether it's just rebellion in their heart or whatever it is, this is the kind of thing that Satan wants to do to your young people. And sometimes they will succumb. And you will come to God just as this young man came to Jesus and say, Lord, help me. Lord, have mercy on me. It's all you can do. Lord, help me. And the Lord elicited from him this easy How long has this child been like this? From the very beginning. Some of you have had children that have been difficult from the very beginning. Your hands have been tied. There's absolutely nothing you could do. You have concentrated on being a good parent. None of us is perfect. We all fail. But you've really worked hard at being a good parent. And, and, and that child has been difficult, perhaps hyperactive, dyslexic, whatever. You've just had struggle, struggle, struggle. And people don't understand. No one understands. They don't know what you're going through. People will say to you, if you just uh, do so-and-so, that kid will shape up. And uh, you've read all the books. You've read Dobson's Strong Will Child. And you've uh, applied all the methods. And you've dropped uh, red dye out of your diet and everything else. And the child still is just a pain in the neck. And uh, you don't know what to do. Everybody has a lot of advice. But when it comes right down to it, you're all alone in your struggle. And that's the way this man was. And he just came to the Lord in his desperation and he said, If you can do anything, please help me. And Jesus said, If? What, what do you mean, if? Uh, I read uh, a story about Alexander the Great. Went down into uh, the southern part of Greece, what's called Laconia, and uh, he sent a, a, a wire off to them. He said, uh, "If I uh, conquer you, I will raise your cities." What he wanted, wanted them to sue for peace. He said, "If I conquer you, you will, uh, I'll raise your cities." And they sent back a one-word reply: "If, if." I understand that's where the word laconic comes from, a terse, a terse reply. And, and the man says, if you can do anything, help me. He says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean, if, if? If I can do anything, everything is possible to him who believes. Now, I want you to understand, Jesus does not say that he will do anything we believe he can do. What he's saying is he can. He can. And that really is the issue. Do we really believe God can do anything? Do we believe that he can turn our children around? Do we believe that he can bring someone into their life that can change them? Do we believe that uh, he can fortify us and give us the strength to endure even if they don't come back? Do we believe that? Say, can we just put ourselves utterly in, in his hands? And this man responded the way I would respond, and perhaps you would respond. He sees the inadequacy of his own faith, and he says, Oh, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe this much, but I, that's all I can believe. I thought when I read that of the story that we looked at some months ago when we were in the book of Joshua and, and the priests were told to take the ark across the Jordan River and it was during flood tide and the river was raging down its channels and, and uh, those, those uh, priests did not dash down to the edge of the river and throw themselves into that torrent. But you come to the Lord and you say, I don't know what you can do, but I know you can do something. And God honors that. Just as our Lord honored this man's request, he came out of his desperation. Lord Jesus, help me, help me. C.S. Lewis says that down through the years, men 
have cried out, William Shakespeare, help me, and nothing much happens. And they cry out, Billy Budd, help me, and nothing much happens. But whenever people cry out, Lord Jesus, help me, something happens. And in this case, uh, something happened. The Lord cured this boy. Now, there are a lot of boys he didn't cure. You have to understand that. He doesn't promise to cure every boy. But he cured this boy. As a matter of fact, I think the cure is the small change of the story. The important thing is that this man learned to trust God no matter what. He just threw himself upon the mercy of God. Someone I read recently talks about, uh, talked, used a, a phrase, uh, talked about the uncovenanted mercies of God. And I understood what he's talking about. Some things are promised in Scripture. Some things are promised. Other things are not promised, but sometimes God just gives them because he loves them, because he's merciful. He doesn't have to. They're not promises. But he gives them anyway. And I thought of our children, you know. What kind of parent would we be if we only gave our children what we promised to give them? And uh, God doesn't promise to save every boy and every girl that's struggling in his or her faith. But sometimes he does. Sometimes. Sometimes he turns them around. In this case he did. He said, bring the boy to me, which is always the, that's always the issue. He said, take these kids to Jesus. That's all we can do is put them in his hands. And uh, the uh, crowd began to uh, run. And he rebuked the evil spirit, run to the scene, and he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and dumb spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Interesting. No histrionics, no shouting, no rolling of the eyes, no, you know, no long appeals, no extended prayer. He just says to the demon, come out. The demon came out. Before he did, he convulsed him violently. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. The boy looked like he was dead. And sometimes our kids do appear to be dead. And Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet. And he stood up. Um, just a couple of comments here. As I said, this, uh, this healing is really the small change. Uh, God may heal, but he may not. He may not. He may simply give you the grace to endure. Because there is a work to be done in your life. There are powers to be born and perfected. They can only be perfected through suffering. Carolyn was reading to me an excerpt from Elizabeth Elliot's recent book on suffering. We stumbled across her house. We, we were, uh, we were in, in Massachusetts, Salem, Massachusetts, just driving down the little highway runs right by the ocean and uh, we saw a sign that said Strawberry, Massachusetts and we knew that she lived there and Carolyn had the book with her in the car and we looked at the actually had her address in the book and we looked up her house, little gray house right on the Atlantic Ocean wonderful spot, we, I was hoping we would see her but uh, she wasn't there but she had been reading this book and this morning she read to me an ex, just a, a little extract excerpt from uh, uh, from her book, she said, he that, she, he that suffers most has the most to give. He that suffers most has the most to give. It's always true. It's always true. You know, I can tell you for the earliest, for, for the early years of my parenting, I thought I was a perfect parent. And I was disillusioned. 
And I'll tell you what, today I can sit across from a man who's telling me about his heartache and I can weep with him. I understand. I understand. Nobody understands like somebody who's been through it. And when you go through one of these uh, tough times with your kids, you gain an empathy with people that, uh, that you, couldn't, you couldn't acquire any other way. When you go through a hard marriage, you, you learn to be sensitive to other people's hurts and pain. When you go through physical affliction and suffering, then you learn to suffer with other people. It softens you. Softens your face, softens your heart. And uh, there just isn't any other way. I don't know any other way. Uh, he who suffers most has the most to give. Well, the, uh, the disciples came to Jesus and they wanted to know why they were so inept. Verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? I mean, they had exercised demons before. He'd given them that power, we were told in the gospel. When the first time they'd come in contact with a demonized person. Why couldn't we drive him out? And Jesus says an interesting thing, this kind. What kind? Well, he's referring to these impossible situations, these situations for which there is no human solution. This man, I'm sure, had taken his boy to one physician after another. He'd, he'd read the latest books. He was up on all of the techniques. He, he had completely run out of options. He didn't have any option except the Lord himself. Jesus says, this kind only comes out through prayer. Well, the interesting thing is that Jesus didn't pray at all, at least not audibly. So what is he talking about? Well, the prayer that he has in mind was the fervent prayer of this, of this parent who came to Jesus and said, help me, help me. You see what Jesus is saying? We are constantly being confronted with these problems in life for which there are no human solutions. Maybe it's a divorce that... It's impending. Maybe it's uh, you've discovered that you have cancer. Maybe it's the loss of, a, uh, of your job and your vocation. Maybe it's you've discovered that you're going blind. Uh, maybe it's a child that's out of control. You know, you really can't control another person. We think we can, but we can't. can't control. And there are simply no human solutions. That's the kind that Jesus is talking about. What do you do at a time like that? Just go to Jesus and say, help me. Help us. Have mercy on us. And then he begins to fill and flood us with his presence. And we draw close to him in a way that we could never, uh, we could never know him otherwise. I mentioned last week, uh, dear old Job, uh, all of Job's friends had the answer to his problem. But in the end, God interrupts him. Yeah, these fellows are all wrong. They're all wrong. So you don't need to know why all this is happening to you. All you need to do is keep your eyes on me. That's all. Job, at the end of his life, says, Oh, he said, I've heard of you with the hearing of the ears. Now I see you. Now I see you. Pain pushes us closer to God. We gain more of him than we could ever gain otherwise. And that suffering equips us to be a more compassionate, loving, caring person with impact upon others. And when all is said and done, that's the only thing that really matters. Let's pray.